Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast from Altos Research. This is the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the trends shaping the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. For years now, we've been sharing the latest market data every week in our weekly Altos Research video series. The Top of Mind podcast, we like to add context to the discussion about what's happening in the market from from leaders in the industry. Every week, of course, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, all the supply and demand, all the changes in that data, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. People desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now. Uh, The market was frozen so solid last fall, and then the landscape changed suddenly again this spring. So what happens next? If you need to communicate about this market to your clients, go to altosresearch.com and just book a free consult with our team. We'll review your local market and how you can use market data in your business. And speaking with that, of that, we have my guest today is one of the great pioneers of using market data in her real estate business, Lee Brown. Lee is a a well-known, highly accomplished trainer and speaker in the real estate industry with decades of real estate experience. She's a best-selling author of three books. I've read at least two of them. Uh, And she has a terrific podcast. And she also uh, shares her expertise with anyone looking to ignite their passions in real estate, like people growing their business and trying to understand this business. She also, not coincidentally, uh, has a very successful brokerage in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I've known and worked with Lee for probably 15 years. Uh, she's always has really smart insights on the market, and I always appreciate her wisdom. I always learn something every time I talk with Lee. Uh, Lee has one of the best insights about using the Altos Research products report, and she mentioned it to me years ago, and I still teach people today to use Lee's technique about it. She's been a great supporter of Altos over the years. So, yay. Uh, Lee Brown, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Mike. I'm kind of wishing I had you to start my day every day because you said all those nice things. Yeah, it's so great. Thank you for the kindness. But I'm, I'm kind of dying to know what it is I said that you've been using all these years because I don't remember what I say sometimes. Well, let's start there. So the Lee Brown technique is you take your Altos market report, you go into the listing presentation, put it right on top of the stack, and you say, are you a big geek or a little geek? That's right. Good job. Because if you're a big geek, I'm going to put the data in your inbox every Monday. It's going to show you all the stuff. But even if you're just a little geek, I want you to watch one number. While we got your house listed, you just look at this one number. If this thing's falling while we have your house listed, that's the market telling us that buyers are getting more scarce and maybe we need to get ahead of this curve. And it's such a straightforward, it's such good thinking. Uh, And I teach it to people. I kind of, sometimes I take credit for it today. Sometimes I actually give you credit for it. Uh, But it's really, uh, it was really, really useful in its, you know, it's like the element of taking the data and communicating with the data. And, and uh, like, I try to be very skillful with that. And very often I learn from the practitioners like, like you. So that's the Lee Brown technique when you're talking about market data. 
Are you a big geek or a little geek? And that's actually really fair that you forget to give me credit since I forgot that I told you about that. So it, it kind of evens out since we're both medium age. But first of all, most real estate professionals do get scared of data. As you know, they are just not math people in general. And it's not that some of y'all can't do the math. I know that you can absolutely work any percentage we give to you. However, you get intimidated by it. In fact, we talk to professionals about their experience as a professional realtor, and they say the hardest thing was the math and pre-licensing. And now they're responsible for a lot of things besides the math. But the data can tell us a very good story that's not being filtered through anybody's opinion. And I love that about real estate because everything else in this business is subjective. So what do you think about condition? And we're pricing houses in a range and we're totally guessing all the time. But some of these data points are very finite and it gives you something on which to stand, especially with the consumers who need that, the engineers or the accountants. And I'm married to an engineer. So as y'all can guess, he's not the client any real estate pro wants because he's got three pages worth of questions I'm the client they want because I'm like, I just want to sell it. What's the number? Let's go. Let's go. I'm not going to sit and stew over the information. But if you're the real estate professional who jumps to the conclusion with somebody who's detail-oriented, there's a huge disconnect. And that's how I started asking that question about how much of a geek are you, which would have been offensive to us in our lunchrooms of the early 80s. It would have been a very aggressive, ugly thing to say. But nowadays, it's considered a compliment to be called a geek because we know they are, frankly, running the world right now. And so we may as well figure out where we can lean in, especially in a market like this. And when you figure out that the market is still moving, it just moves differently from day to day. It, I, I reference as a weird market. I don't know what it's going to do today or tomorrow. It's very weird. But I know the market is always going to have some activity in it. And my Altos reports let me convey that to my buyers and sellers on that Monday drop, I love that I can tell them, you're going to get your email on a Monday, same time as me. And so they also have this buy-in of transparency that I'm getting updated at the same time they are. So I'm not trying to play the old shell game of, well, I'll show you certain pieces of information, but not all of them. Yeah, exactly. And that that phrasing has, uh, has there's a lot of power in that phrasing. It's It's not like, hey, do you want this? It's, I'm going to give this to you. How much do you want to dive in? It's like a, it's an assumptive close. It's like we're going to put this in your inbox because it's good for you, and I'm and I and and I'm not giving you an option for it. It's a really really powerful phrasing. I love it. Right, and you're you're free to read it or not. And I also love that in the back end of my Altos account, I can see who's opening the reports. And actually, in my office now, we we pre guess after we've had the first consultation with somebody like. Are they open report or not open report people? And we actually can guess based on the appointment if they're going to look at it every week or not. And then the other secret there, too, since we're talking about the Monday drop of the reports. And by the way, y'all, this is one of the three things I pay for. I don't pay for a lot of subscriptions in real estate because most of them are a bleed. This one's worth it to me for one reason. If I met with somebody a year ago and they weren't quite ready... One of the hardest things we have in this business is follow up with people who are thinking of selling. We're great at following up with buyers. They're easy. We know when they're hot and cold because of interest rates and inventory. But sellers, they're, they're not necessarily on the same timeline. So when I put a seller suspect into my Altos account and I'm watching these open rates, if I watch somebody who never opened anything and then suddenly they've opened it seven times, like, oh, oh, oh they woke up. 
And in the following Monday, they opened it 10 times because somebody who's changed their timeline internally but hasn't told anyone is actually going to give us a hint preliminarily because they're trying to remember how to read the report. I know that's why they opened it multiple times. It's not because it's that fascinating. Frankly, they're thinking, okay, Lee told me how to read this. I don't remember. I don't remember. And so then I reach out and it's very soft and say, hey, just wanted to make sure you're getting your reports. If you had any questions, if anything needs a refresh. So then I'm very soft in offering them information, but it's because I knew a little bit. So I guess I shouldn't complain about Big Brother because I'm playing it too. <laughs> the, uh, it, we like to think that our Big Brotherness is benign and, and useful to the, <laughs> to the world, right? So that's terrific. And, and uh, I, I mean, I can spend all time all day talking about, you know, how you use the Altos product, but, but I'm really interested in, in also uh, uh, learning about your take on the market and stuff. But let's start with, for our listeners about a little, just a background. Um, you're a real estate family. Uh, so tell me about your curve to where you got to here today. So this is my 23rd full-time year in residential I got in in 2000 and I already had my license because my dad, who got his license in 78, all along had told me, you should do this. And of course, like most kids of realtors, I'm like, uh-uh, I don't want to do what you do. It's awful. It's terrible. But then when I was in the middle of one of my jobs, my dad said, just get your license at night. It's easy. It doesn't cost much. And so I did what many people do and got my real estate license at night in the basement of the Realtor Association with the most amazing instructor who's remained one of my mentors to this day, Cindy Chandler. And I got it and then I let it go inactive because I wasn't using it. And when that job ended because I was miserable, I activated it and joined my dad. And then my dad grew up with a dad who was a home builder. So I'm third generation real estate. We're just a little different in specialty because my granddad built custom houses, but it's not the luxury lakefront MBA kind of custom. This was a North Carolina brick ranch, 1,188 square feet, three bedroom, one and a half bath. But it was built because somebody asked him to, which I think is one of the lost definitions of the custom real estate side, Mike. We think about custom as the super swanky stuff, when in reality, it's just built to order. And that's what he built. Well, my dad, of course, carpentered for his dad. And then after he had some career stops and starts, he landed in real estate and became very successful and then after my stops and starts career-wise, I landed in real estate. And and somehow I've looked up and 23 years have passed, and I just can't get my mind around that. That's amazing. And you've run your, your own brokerage for now for a handful of years? Yeah, so we owned a REMAX franchise and loved the brand, but it was just time for me to go do something independent. My dad's been retired for some several years. And so in 2020... In January, I went out on my own, opened independent brokerage. And then in March of 2020, we all went on lockdown. So it's actually a really good time to open a brokerage is when the world is in chaos because about two minutes after we all figured out we weren't actually going to be piled up on sidewalks, then the market went crazy. And I was so glad that I was independent, not because I didn't love my partners and my former agent colleagues, just because we could pivot into the market in a different way. And here we are. Yes. Um, and, and that was an interesting time. I mean, like everything was, was nuts and, and uh, it could have gone the other way, right? It could have been that timing. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Cause you know, what was funny is like me and a lot of my realtor friends that had been in during the great recession, 
on the day of lockdown starting, which was Friday the 13th, that March 13th of 2020, the phones stopped ringing and all of us were calling each other. We're like, are, is, is, this, is this happening again? Because the same thing had happened in August of 2007 and all of us were checking our phone cords. Did we pay the bill? The phone's still working because it went silent. And the same thing happened at the beginning of COVID, but it just didn't take much longer than that for everything to completely unfreeze and go wild, which did not happen during the Great Recession. But it was just that that frozen moment was wild to think about because I was like, I don't I don't want to do this again, but I'm better positioned this time, but I don't want to do that again. Yeah. Now we've stabilized some at the end of the white hot market. And I still don't want to do this again because I've, I have hated the multiple offers and we still get multiple offers now just because of the, the frozen inventory, but it's not as bad as it was in the height of COVID. Whew. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like a lot of threads that I want to go on here. So uh, the, the transition from the end of the white hot market, I'm also actually interested um, in the, the realtor journey, you know, your story of like, you're miserable at a job and, and said, all right, it's time to go into the space. And it's such a journey for so many folks in real estate. Uh, but we're also in a point where we're coming off the white hot market and we have, there's a lot of realtors and what does that mean for the world? And a lot of the critics of the industry talk about, use that number of realtors as a, as a real negative sign. So I, I'm interested in all your thoughts there. Uh, let's start at the, where we are right now about being we're at the end of the white hot market. Uh, tell me about uh, what this year looks like and what, you know, what you know, market wise and what your buyers and sellers are doing and what, what should we know about what's happening right now? What you should know is that what you're experiencing is wildly dependent on the zip code that you serve. And I, I just can't stand Mike listening to national economist or anybody with a national opinion about real estate because it's crap. I am so glad not to be in the Bay Area of California. They're experiencing in a very challenging market that's going to probably get worse before it gets better because of the challenges on the commercial real estate side. New York City, Manhattan is experiencing the same kind of upheaval of what's going to happen on the commercial side has an impact on residential. That does not mean those markets are dead. That just means those markets are very specific. Austin, Texas has a fall off in prices right now. But if you look outside of town to Bastrop, 30 minutes away, their market's not dead. And so it's just so hyper-local. And we all forget that in a social media world. We start scanning and scrolling. And you look at your buddy and you're like, well, that's, what? Well, stop it. Just, just stop it. And look at the data for your own zip code. When I look at our market, North Carolina is one of the fastest growing states. We're number three. So I know that there's economic development that's continuing to drive people here. We also call them economic refugees because they were trying to escape California, New York, New Jersey because of high tax environments. And frankly, they just want to live in a happier place. And the South is a happier place with our nice four seasons. And it's very green outside and it's hot and humid, but it'd be fine in a month. So we know people are coming here, but our sellers still aren't selling because of other pressures on the market, which would be their old interest rates on their old mortgages. But it does not mean they won't move. So it's just different. And even where I am, my office is in downtown Concord. That's 28025, known as Old Concord, and 28027 is five miles south, and that's known as New Concord, and they just behave differently because of the housing stock, because of the proximity to the interstates and the jobs. And when you start looking at all those things, your market predictions have to drill right back down to where you are. 
So I can confidently tell somebody coming in, in our county, the county I'm in, we're 4,000 rooftops short based on our last housing study. So when buyers say to me, I just don't know if I should buy, the market's going to crash. I'm like, if it's going to crash, we've already got a huge delta we're going to have to solve for because we have a massive shortage of inventory. So what you're waiting on is a crash that, if it started today, would still not expose itself for 24 or 36 months. And in that time frame, your rents are doing this. And so let's just talk about the fundamental realities of what that means to your budget. And then it also allows me to tell sellers, if you sell right now, you might be giving up some upside. However, when we look at the data on interest rates and what the Fed is doing, those rates might go up on the buy side. So how much risk are you willing to undertake? And I always go back to the underlying data for the zip code to help me guide people in making their own decisions because I will never say it's always a good time to buy or sell. That's a, a word that we should never use in real estate. I just said never. So we shouldn't use never and always, but I did, but I'm in, talking right now. With your clients, though, it should be some people should be selling right now and some people should be buying and some people should hold tight. And that's got to be where we personalize the decision for the consumer based on the personalized data for the zip code we're in. And I look at where my business is right now. We are having a very solid year. We're up right now, even though the market has fewer transactions and the market has fewer sides going on, as we say. But that's because when the markets are volatile or weird or however you want to describe it, a consumer is going to migrate to somebody who's got some experience and also can back up whatever they're saying with information. They're not looking for fluff and fake. They're not looking for selling Sunset HGTV. They're looking for somebody who's completely dialed in. So that's why my phones are ringing, but it's also why I have an obligation as a broker to make sure that my agents are fully educated so that when the phone rings for Lee Brown and all her years, but I don't have the bandwidth to help every caller, if I give them to one of my trusted agents, my agents are equipped to even be better than I am. And that's a, a multi-pronged situation. But back to your little question there about the size of the profession and, and how many licensees are out there, we should always remember there's about double the number of licensees that there are realtors. And so if we have one and a half million realtors, there's probably three million total licenses rolling around out there because some people just don't belong to the trade association. Now, that does not mean that all of them are competing for the consumer, buyer, and seller. A lot of the people who are licensees or who are realtor members that don't sell anything, they are administrative professionals. They are closing transaction coordinators. They are paralegals who want to have access to the information and want to make sure they're fully educated. They are appraisal members who don't show sales transactions but are involved in the business and want to provide an independent verification of value. And then you start realizing that a chart, large chunk of the membership and the licenses never intended to sell, but they provide massively important services in and around the transaction. And then inside the selling body, you've got people who may have very little experience right now, but they are focused. They built a business plan. They are learning the information and the data and the neighborhoods and the builders, and they are determined to make it. They will do great, even in a volatile market. And by that same token, you have some agents who've been successful for decades who are not continually updating their skill set and have not responded or reacted positively to the market who are going to watch their sales drop off. And so anybody can gain market share right now with the right attitude and discipline, and anybody can also lose market share with lack of discipline and lack of willingness to grow their knowledge. But the last little asterisk I'll put on that is that with the 
the last three years have just been a painful market, Mike. And you've talked to a lot of agents, too. They're just exhausted because for the last three years, they haven't had a day off because if some house hits the market, you have to rush over there and write an offer and everything is so panicked in last second. And so people are strung really thin. And especially our very seasoned realtors, we're about to see a large tranche of members retire who would have retired sometime during the Great Recession, but because they were caught off guard financially, maybe weren't ready to take their savings and call it a day. And so they've continued to work. And I've talked to a lot of them. They're like, I ain't doing this again. I'm, I've got some stockpile now because of COVID. I've learned how to save this time because I learned the lessons from last time and I'm going to start to hang up my hat. So we're going to see some transition there that's going to provide opportunity for that early career realtor with a business plan and discipline and a drive. So it's just a, it's such a fluctuating piece. And I wish that the public knew when they hear the scope of our membership size that there is a broad array of experience in there. There's a broad array of specialties in there. And there's also members who are still figuring out where they belong, but they're not necessarily out there harming anybody. I, I get crazy with the mainstream media's approach that having too many realtors is harmful to the consumer. It's got nothing to do with that. So or do we have mediocre and less skilled people? We do. And we should focus on figuring out how to raise their skill level or escort them to the door. But just the number is not an indication of lack of expertise or competence. Yes. Excellent. You are, there are a couple of things in there I really like. The, tell me how this reacts to you. I have this hi, uh, a hypothesis about uh, because it's relatively easy to become a realtor and also to leave again the, the industry that it's an efficient market and therefore we always have exactly the right number of realtors. Does that resonate with you? Yes, because I don't buy into this current modern monetary theory, this MMT crap that's ruining us on the, the macro scale. <laughs> I'm an old economics person. I'm all with you. This is absolutely an efficient market. And you know what makes it even more efficient is that because there are so many realtors out there and so it's so competitive. I mean, I really feel for new licensees when they come like, oh, I can do this. It's going to be easy. And I'm like, you're, you're, you're going to find out how hard it is to survive and how much you have to learn to survive. But then I look at that individual realtor and their personality set, their skill set, their unique ability to communicate. They're never going to be the right agent for everybody. And so the other efficiency of the size of the membership is that there's truly somebody for everybody. There can be a best fit. Just like I'm not everybody's ideal agent they should be able to find the person with whom they can communicate honestly and transparently and get the kind of service they're looking for. And it's not that I wouldn't do a good job for anybody, but you just don't G and haul with everybody. And that's not a bad thing. It's great because the consumer can say, you know what? I want X, Y, and Z. Let me go find it. And I can guarantee it's going to be out there. And so when I look at that piece of it, I also look at the number of relationships any of us can manage. And it's some research that was done it's called Dunbar's Number. It started in the 90s, a British psychologist, and he was evaluating how many relationships any adult human can actually manage with bandwidth. He said the number averages out to 150. Now, any realtor worth their salts is going to argue with me up and down. They can absolutely manage more than 150 people, and I say you're lying because 
if you're really in relationship with somebody, you knew that their mama fell and broke her hip, even though you didn't see it on social media because you're in their inner circle. Or you knew that they were having a rough spot with their teenage kid because you're in their inner circle. So that's your inner circle. And if that's only 150 relationships, it doesn't mean you can't work with other people or be impactful to other people. I'm not suggesting that that's your max. I'm saying that's how many you have the human bandwidth for. Now, the 150 that I influence are different than the 150 that agent, that agent, that agent, and that agent influence. It's not because of any immutable characteristics or any fair housing violations. So anybody that's already spotting that, stop. I mean, for heaven's sake, just stop. You're friends with who you're friends with. But if your circle is different than my circle, my circle craves knowledge from me because they trust me. They know me. I'm their person. You, Agent Bob, your circle trusts you, listens to you because you're in their circle. If I'm not in the business, who are my people going to listen to? They're going to get divvied up. And then they got to build trust and they got to find somebody with competence and expertise. So the way I look at it is because we have all these little, if you put a little Venn diagram on any real estate professional, there's a tiny bit of overlap from agent to agent. Maybe you have kids in the same school or you're on the same ball team or you go to the same church, whatever it is, there's going to be some overlap, but it's never a hundred percent. And so that's why we need so many real estate professionals so that every consumer has access to somebody who can show them a pathway to whatever they want real estate to look like, whether it's land ownership or building a house or their first generation home or a business opportunity. There should be a realtor they can call on and it's probably not going to be the same one. That's a great, great explanation. You, um, you mentioned, I, I, I think about Dunbar's number a lot. I thought about it in a number of contexts. Um, there's some real insight there, but you mentioned something else in there, which was uh, there's a large tranche of realtors who are re getting ready to retire. And I hadn't heard that before. Are we about to get to a sh have a shortage of realtors? I don't know that you could really ever have a shortage of realtors, but I think you could have a shortage of highly skilled, highly knowledgeable, excellent communicators. Those kinds of realtors could be in shortage. And, and here's why I'll say that. The ones that are in that retirement space tend to be boomers. And you have some silent generation because you don't have to retire from real estate. It's one of the pros and cons of the business. They are known for reading body language. They're excellent with eye contact. They understand how inflection can tell a story. And I don't mean this to sound ugly, young people, but if you're young people listening and watching this, millennials, and Generation Z. And I have two Generation Zs that I'm raising. I have two teenagers. One's heading to college. One's a senior in high school. They are not skilled at body language and eye contact, even though I, as a parent, am shoving it on them nonstop. My kids are going to be better, though, than 90% of their peers. So if you are a real estate professional who's a millennial or a Zoomer, you're in a very large generation that has a real gap to one of the things that we need as professionals to understand the person we're trying to serve because most people don't tell their story through their words. They tell their story through their reactions with their body and with their face. So the generation that's retiring, I'd love it if more of our early career realtors would find a mentor in that generation and say, I want to eat more lunch with you and have more coffee with you so that I can learn from you how to respond and react in a way that honors that consumer because communication is not about you making money though it's about 
how you honor the consumer by listening in all these different ways to give them a good answer. We're going to be facing a huge number of people going through divorces. That's going to be happening, and I know this because my aunt's a divorce lawyer. She's been telling me for the last couple of years that the pipelines are full, and they're all just watching for the moment that's going to allow it to finally settle itself out because the secret of the suppressed inventory to Mike is that people who would leave the marital home and then go buy two properties or go rent two properties, um, there's nowhere for them to go either. And so a lot of them have hit a truce in the house. One's over in this side, one's on this side, until they can hit that point of moving forward. And I mention this because if you're a skilled communicator and you sit down with somebody going through that event, which is the most traumatic thing a lot of people go through, it devastates their routines, their family structures, the family fabric, and their finances, but they don't want to tell you about it because their their pride is hurt, their feelings are hurt. It's just so painful. But you need to know about it very quickly so that you can serve. So when you're a good communicator and you start to spot the signals, you should learn how to temper your conversation, change your tone of voice, start asking different questions, start talking about yourself as somebody who's good at confidential information instead of somebody who's a braggart on social media because the needs are different. And that's where we're going to have a gap, I think, is that ability to communicate because realtors love email because it's easy. They love text because it's easy. But where the rubber hits the road is in person where it's hard. And when things are hard, that's when you have a chance to really shine and excel. That's that's what I, I see as an opportunity. I'll just say it's an opportunity for our early career people to go gather something their peers don't have. And by the way, if you're a millennial who's excellent at eye contact and body language, you will knock the cover off the ball because the older generation loves giving young people a chance. My first clients when I got in as a single person in my early 20s, it was the older clients that gave me a chance as their buyer's agent or listing agent because they wanted to help the young person out you're probably not going to see that from your peers. They're like, no, nah, I'm good. We'll see what you do in two or three years, and maybe I'll use you then. Just start embracing our generational differences, not to drive us apart, but to say, there's something to offer here. There's something to offer here. And when you add it together, it serves every neighbor and every zip code, which should be our goal as professionals. Terrific insights. Let's switch to the market. Uh, so like talking about the market. So, uh, interest rates, they were in the sixes, they're in the sevens, they're over the seven. Are you uh, noticing, is there things that we should know about how consumers are acting or reacting to where mortgage rates are now or, you know, fluctuations? And what's what's going on in your world? Well, first of all, there I hate these devices. They are a poison. None of us can focus anymore. We have no attention span we are distracted all the time because we look at notifications. But there's an upside to all of our brains having been horribly rewired. Today's buyer has effectively forgotten about 3% interest rates that we had in March of 2022. I was wondering where you were going with that. <laughs> That's right. they're, so, they're so filled by noise. Like the noise is so loud all the time. In March of 22, remember... The buyers had seen 3% interest rates since 2008, since they had artificially lowered them and kept them low. So all the buyers had known was a 3% environment, maybe 275 or three and a quarter, but it was just artificially low. Old people like me, like, I bought my first house at 11 and three quarters. Don't talk to me about expensive because I know expensive. 
Well, when it went from three to four in April of 22, and from four to five in May, and from five to six in June, and from six to seven in July, and all of us were like, <clears throat> it was a real shock to the system. However, we've now been in that six and seven range, just kind of chunking around up and down, maybe down to five and three quarters, maybe up to seven and a half. But it's been in a different range now for a year and a half. Our buyers are accustomed to it. So now when I talk to a buyer on the phone and they say, you know, what am I looking at for interest rates? I'm like, eh, let's just use seven as a guide so we have a ballpark. And they're chill with that. Whereas a year ago, they were still thinking, I should wait for it to go back down. I can go back down. I can refinance because I'll... I'll just tell you, one of my previous jobs, I did work on Wall Street. I do have enough financial knowledge to be entirely dangerous. I am bearish about interest rates. I don't agree with the national economists that believe it's going to go back down. That's simply because the rate of inflation has not been solved yet because we've had too much quantitative easing, which is also known as printing dollars. So for those of y'all that want to know what QE means when you hear it in quantitative easing, that's the Treasury running the printing press trying to solve their own problems, and that does not solve your problems any more than you having a fuss with your husband means you should go get four more husbands. That is not going to make your problems better. <laughs> I've never thought about that analogy before. That's totally going to be like what you clip out for TikTok and just make sure you tag me in it because that was great. <laughs> now, I want you to think about this. When our interest rates are volatile because of what's happening in monetary policy, that does not make you a bad guy for telling a buyer we're at seven right now. We could go to eight. I think a lot of professionals are afraid to say rates could go higher because they may. And I do think they will. I don't know when, but I just feel in my core we're going to wind up around nines for a while before we see it pull back. But here's what that means. If I'm right and they buy at seven, they're going to be glad. If I'm wrong and it does pull back to five and a half, then I will talk to them about what a refinance looks like. I'll make sure they know there are fees and costs associated with it, which is currently driving me crazy in marketing for real estate professionals. But just refi if it goes down. Just refi. I'm like, you should probably tell them the refi does involve money. And so I'm going to make sure all of my clients have the pros and cons of ups and downs because I could be wrong and it may go down. And But if I'm right, they'll be glad they listened right now. And I guess the moral of that story is, you cannot be all the time positive or all the time negative. Your job has to be, it could go up, it could go down, it could go sideways, which is also, well, my Altos reports. That's how I explain the seller demand and I explain all of the trends in the market. It might go up, it might go down, it might go sideways, I don't know. But here are your scenarios so that you can make a good choice. And if you think I'm crazy for being bearish about interest rates, I want you to be a history person for just a minute, not on Wikipedia, but with a real book or a real historian. Go look at the Weimar Republic in Germany in the 30s, post-World War I, pre-World War II. And when you start to understand the damage that can be caused by monetary policy that does not take into account how regular people live, you'll start thinking about things in a different way. And here's where you'll wind up thinking. You'll say, well, if money goes crazy, you know what doesn't go crazy? Real estate, because it is a tangible asset. So even if numbers go wild, if I can handle the payment, I'm good. I'm in a house. I've got a bedroom, a bathroom, and a kitchen. I'm solid. And that's what we also have to drive the conversation back to is that even when we're talking about market conditions, ups, downs, and sideways, and interest rates, what we're ultimately talking about is that tangible asset. And if you're a primary residence realtor, it's where they live and eat supper and lay their head down at night. And they're going to have to do that somewhere, so would they rather do it in somebody else's property or in their own? The question becomes, 
What's the difference in the rent and the mortgage, and can their budget handle it? And then you realize you've actually taken interest rates out of the conversation altogether, which is what we should be doing for the public to help them let go of their panic and take care of their realities. And if there's one phrase I could eliminate right now, it would be this crap that's running around saying, date the rate, marry the house. No, 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 no. It's date the rate, marry the payment. Take the house out of it for a second. It's just about the payment. If they can handle $2,000 a month and be I go out to eat once in a while and go on vacation, that 30-year fixed is the best hedge we have against inflation. Now, you can't control property taxes and insurance, but those are going to be fairly nominal changes to the payment as opposed to what's happening in the rental market. If they can't handle the payment, then don't let them buy the house. That's what it should boil down to. Right. If you can afford the house and you love the house, it's okay to buy the house. If you can't afford it or you don't love it, don't buy the house. I think your insight on uh, interest rates is novel, and I appreciate that. Um, I'm not sure we should discuss uh, the Weimar Republic on, on the podcast here. I'll let you, uh, you take that. Why is history scary, though, Mike? Like, it's crazy to me. Because there are people that would take that and run with it in an extreme position when I'm saying... If you look at how the German people were hammered at the end of World War I because of their own actions, the reaction that was done by the government created more issues, which led us into a despot in power who then caused World War II. So you have to remember the despot comes out of bad monetary policy and, well, frankly, just, you know, spawn of Satan. But outside of that, you, you have all these things we should be watching. And I'm not suggesting that the same, that World War III comes out of our bad monetary policy here, but... When you see wheelbarrows full of printed money, it causes unrest. And I don't want any more unrest in the country. I think we have way too much as it is. Yeah. Well, and, and, and uh, you know, to be, to be like dive into that for a second, you know, we have, uh, we have a government and the Fed who is very focused on inflation. Uh, and, you know, and is indeed, but that's, I think, why your first comment about 8%, 9%, like those could, we could indeed see higher mortgage rates from here because the Fed is definitely focused on inflation. So inflation's falling. It's not done yet. And the economy continues to grow instead of like, you know, I've been, you know, we've been talking about recession signals for a year and a half. And we've had them and yeah, they're there. Like the numbers look recessive on paper, but the economy's not behaving recessive. It is. It's weird. It's weird on the financial market side. The stock markets should have fallen by now with the P.E. ratios we're looking at, and they haven't. It's just weird, and people are employed, and there's not enough workers. It's just, it's, I mean, we're living in some crazy, crazy times. And it does imply that, that rates, they don't have to fall from here for years. Like, they could indeed be at a new, a new level. Point something out, Mike. The new level they're at is, oh, on the 40-year historic average. So plug, plug all the 30-year interest rates, the 30-year fixed, into a plot over the last 40-plus years. And the last time I ran the signal on, and I think the average came out at 6.4% on the average 30-year fixed over 40-plus years. So we are still sitting within a variance of that, which means... Maybe we just landed where it's supposed to be. 
and I don't have to be super bearish anymore and we'll just kind of hang out here for a while. But I still feel as a professional, even if I'm bullish, my job is to say, here's the bull's opinion, here's the bear's opinion, so that the consumer can decide where they want to fall. I can't walk in there with a crystal ball and say, I know all things, because that's the mark of a, a amateur real estate person, in my opinion. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I, and, and, uh, the date, the rate, marry the payment, I think is a terrific observation. The, uh, and, and really though, the gem there is that consumers, home buyers have essentially, they've already forgotten about 3% rates. They look at 7%, it's 7% and we're making decisions on 7% and it's time to live my life. That's really fascinating. And uh, okay, so that's that's really great um, it, thoughts there, I, I, and and exactly what we wanted to get out though. Um, so let's talk about other uh, trends in the market. Charlotte, big investor market, big i buyers. What do we need to know about right now in in like that those like cash buyers, like all of that? What are you seeing out there in Charlotte? What's new this year? Are, are investors selling or like Airbnb folks like panicking? Is you see anything like that that we should be paying attention to? No, we don't have the Airbnb panic here because this was, I mean, Charlotte is known as the most boring of the big cities. If you look at the list of the 20 big cities in the country, we're right in there, usually hovering between 14 and 16. All the other cities, though, Los Angeles, Indianapolis, just has the name of the city. You get the Charlotte, Charlotte, comma, North Carolina. I'm like, y'all aren't even sure what state <laughs> we're in because we're so forgettable. And that means that we actually still have a shortage of Airbnbs. And so if you wanted to stay here, you won't have as many options as you would in somewhere like, for example, Asheville, North Carolina, up in the mountains, is dealing with regulatory pressures because of the number of Airbnbs. And they actually still need more. But that's a whole different environment. So here... We still see people looking for them, trying to figure that out. We've had a bigger issue with the institutional investors. This has been a target market for the BlackRock kind of eye buyers, the big guys, the hedge funds. And we've estimated that 30% of the housing stock in Charlotte is owned by institutional investors. That's a three zero, which is a huge concern on the real estate side because that means a, a huge piece of our housing stock is owned by Wall Street which means it's owned by bottom lines and spreadsheets. It's not owned by people who dial into the PTA and the community and run for office and volunteer and, and work on the arts council and, and spend at the grocery stores and are, belong here, which means that we all have this sort of Damocles hanging over us where we wonder if the financial markets take a tumble, if the stock market were to have an issue, would then the institutional investors cut loose of a large block of that inventory and flood our market? I don't know, but it's something that I have to always be looking at as a possibility just because any macro event can change my zip code. So I have to pay attention to those possibilities. And again, I'm not trying to be a negative Nancy, but I am the person who looks at everything with this multifaceted viewpoint because that's out of my control. Now, what's happened with the large percentage of the stock being held by them, we have a high renter market now. And again, we still have a shortage. And so all this goes back to, it's just, it's weird. But the jobs are still coming here. We are seeing the BTR neighborhoods crop up, build to rent, where an investor puts together a plat, builds a neighborhood, looks single family, looks like you could buy them. It's got a playground and it got little fenced yards and they're all single family, but they're all rented. They're not for sale. 
And to me, the concern there is that if you're renting a really nice home and it feels like you're an owner and it feels good, maybe you just start losing your desire to chase the property ownership American dream. And there's a lot of people out there that debate and discuss should housing, should house ownership be part of the American dream? And I say it does because owning a home for most people is the only financial stability they have in retirement. And it may be it's forced savings. I always hear people on the internet talk about a house as forced savings. Well, I'm okay with that because for a lot of people, they don't have the discipline to save. If the house forces them to save and now they have equity one day, I'm okay with that. Because we also know that home ownership leads people to being more vested where they live. They give back more. We build community differently than renters do. It's not that renters are bad. It's just they perceive a community differently than an owner does. And there's something different about having a stake in the ground. We also know that in home ownership positions, people do better with healthcare outcomes. There is a decrease to the state's Medicaid burden when people are living in owned houses. Kids do better in school when they have the stability of the house that their people own. And those things are going to be scalable impacts on communities that are concerns to me when we don't stay focused on how we get people into home ownership in some way and to get people into home ownership in a growing market where we have an increased number of jobs, we have to also focus on price diversity and make sure that there is a diverse option at the lower end of the price point scale, which does mean we have to be creative with tax credits and with getting our local governments to get out of the way so developers can find a way to work within the price constraints of labor and material so that people have a chance at it. And that's all, again, these are big macro conversations that stem from local elected officials and what are we doing with permits and zoning and regulatory burden, because all of those things add up to whether the lady waiting tables over here on the side hustle to get her down payment together because she's a teacher full time, if she's ever going to get into home ownership, we as the professionals paying attention to this have to be driving the discussion to say there's got to be a little something for everyone in our community, because we know if she gets on the first rung, She's got a better chance of going to the second rung five years from now. If we never get her on the first rung, then the ladder gets really out of reach. And I don't want to see that for any of my neighbors. So I really don't know what question I was answering before I started proselytizing about uh, local elected officials there, Mike. We are, well, so we were talking about, about the, the changing nature of the buyers and the money and things in the market. Well, I guess I kind of answered that then. <laughs> you did. You did. And, and that there is a really significant impact in Charlotte, in your market, uh, with those kind of like those types of institutional buyers. I had, uh, I had Doug Bryan, who's the CEO of a company called Mind. He was one of the founders of Starwood Homes, the, the first uh, Wall Street buyer of single family rental homes and uh, a real pioneer in, in the space. And he, um, he talked about it as a shifting of the American dream in a world where, you know, we have, we have affordability problems uh, for ownership. And so rental is a part of that. Um, that was his perspective on it. You look skeptical. Because he's making money like this. He's doing what <laughs> the young people do where they're talking about cash. And that worries me, Mike, because if you tell renters that long enough, they will believe that they don't have a chance. And my job as a real estate professional, any neighbor I meet, I'm going to tell them you have a chance. We might have to get creative, but I want you to have that chance because when you're paying rent, you have no equity. You have no interest, mortgage interest deduction, and you can't even paint your daughter's bedroom if she says she wants to paint her room 
because it's her turn in the house. You can't say yes because it's not your house. If you want to grow your own tomatoes because you don't like this GMO food they keep shoving at us, you want some heirloom tomatoes, you can't plan on because it's not your property. And you're thinking, well, maybe my landlord lets me. I'm like, mm-hmm, you had to ask permission. The house I live in, I can go plant tomatoes because it's my yard. And that's got to be something that we get people back to is that pride of ownership. And then not just the pride of ownership, but the benefits of ownership. About how it feels when you have that freedom to make decisions. And let's look at it this way too. You're renting a three-bedroom house and you lose your job. All right, the landlord's still going to want the rent and you don't have the flexibility to rent out your spare bedroom to a buddy because your lease doesn't allow for that. You have to ask permission. The landlord said no because... If you leave, he can get 200 more a month from the next guy coming in because there's a shortage. However, if you own that house and you lose your job, you could do what the young people call house hacking. You could sell the spare bedroom to a travel nurse who's going to pay you $400 a month. Now you can patch it through. And why do you have that flexibility? Because it's yours. Awesome. I love that. You do a lot of uh, community level. You do a lot of policy things. Are you doing any work in this area about like, what should we be building or allowing people to buy? Like, do we do, do, like, or, you know, there's a lot of, like you said, in, in Asheville, uh, Airbnb, a uh, lot of, you know, uh, like, like restrictions coming into place. What do you think about those? And are you doing any of them? Yeah, I don't like restrictions. I will say that this year I am the president for the North Carolina Realtors, and we are pursuing conversations at the state level to get rid of restrictions on short-term rentals. And it's for that very reason I described there. They often get a bad rap because people say, well, bachelor and bachelorette parties, and they're loud. Well, you probably have noise ordinances where you live, so maybe, just maybe, if your local government would enforce the noise ordinances, you wouldn't have a bachelorette party going wild but that's probably not who's in that short-term rental because we've seen growth in short-term rentals for people like travel nurses. They're not going to stay long enough to need a long-term lease. They're not ready to buy because they're out there solving medical gaps throughout the country. We see contractors needing somewhere to live a couple months. I've got relocating executives that want to do a short-term rental for three or six months while they get the job going before they bring the family in. And so people all have these interesting time gaps in life that mean there's, you don't really want to be in a hotel that long. You don't really want to do a long-term lease because you'd like to have the flexibility and you're not ready to buy because of your situation as well. It's just not ready. Short-term rentals give that flexibility to the market. But also, as we look at economic volatility, which we're all experiencing that because of the cost of fuel and food and everything else is more expensive, the person who is now stretched because their job situation changed they can, if with the short-term rentals, if there's no big regulations, you can rent that room. One of the fastest growing places with Airbnb is Airbnb rooms and where people will rent a room in their house. And of course you want to vet people. You get to make that decision, but it's your decision. And I think it's also a pretty elegant solution to the housing shortage that we have that travel nurse, for example, that's going to make $100 an hour going in and spot gap filling wherever they need to go. They just need somewhere to put their stuff and be able to sleep for 24 hours when they stop. And that's a really elegant solution instead of them renting a two-bedroom apartment that they're going to use to sleep for 24 hours once a month. And then they're, they're taking up space they're not using. So I just like flexibility in the markets. 
I like the back to the efficiency of the markets. If you let people do what's best for them, they're generally not going to do something that's negative on their neighbors because what's best for them is keeping their neighbors up too. It's the, I'll be really controversial. Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged and in the Fountainhead, her philosophy is called objectivism, which a lot of folks look at her stuff and say it's pure selfishness, but she called it the virtue of selfishness, which the concept she talked about was if you're doing what's best for you, it's often going to also result in what's best for your neighbor because if you let them fall off, it drags you down too. So it's, I'm not saying she's right about everything, but it's just a new way to think about it. And we have to get there with property rights just because of our shortages. And in fact, I'll even give California props. I don't often do that because California's crazy. But when they did statewide approval of accessory dwelling units, the ADUs, that was a move in the market that says, look, we trust that what you're going to do on your property is probably going to be helpful if you let that detached garage become an apartment for somebody else. Now, of course, there's challenges and intricacies to it, but I think there's an efficiency to that, too, that people aren't going to do something that's in their own detriment. They'll do something in their best interest, which might be the best thing for the community, too. Uh, on that policy front in my community, one of the things that I have pressed for in my county and in any county, in fact, other counties, too, because I'm glad to go to a county meeting and stand at the microphone, is what do we do with infill lots? These are all over the country. There are vacant lots in neighborhoods that aren't being utilized in the neighborhood that's maybe already got water and sewer. So the infrastructure's there, the curbs there, sidewalk, street, the whole bit. But an old vacant lot, maybe the house was demolished or somebody had owned the extra lot years and years ago there at sits. I love going to local officials and helping them think about what to do with it because often they look at that lot and say, well, it used to have a single family house. That's what has to go there. And here's the building envelope and here's the rules. And I can go to them and say, but what if you put a creative duplex on that lot. What if you make two properties in their head? They're thinking, ah, slumlords. You're like, eh, there's a lot of really cool designs out there. So I'll go to a county meeting and I'll bring a floor plan design that they didn't realize duplexes could be cute and it could fit on that lot. And we could do creative things inside a building envelope or, and this is crazy for a lot of our local elected officials, I'll talk to them about conditional variances. And I was at a town meeting, Mike, this was, I don't know, about three years ago. And I was there, and in the historic district was a vacant lot. And it was vacant because it had had a foreclosure on it that I represented that we had to demolish because there was no way to bring this house back. And the neighbors were pitching a flaring fit over anything happening to that lot. And I talked to the town. I said, we can put something cute here that will solve a hole in the street where it's an overgrown lot that had a dilapidated property on it, this could be great. And they said, but if we say yes to that, we have to say yes to everything. I said, no, baby, that's not what a variance is. A variance is you can say yes this time, and you don't have to say yes every time. And for three hours, we went round and round about a conditional variance because they could not get their minds around it. But it's because angry historic district lady was at the other microphone yelling about how it had to be a historic house. And until we as reasonable, rational people start showing up at these meetings, we're not there to counterbalance crazy cat lady over here who wants a neighborhood to never change. I don't think change is necessarily perfect all the time, but change happens. And if, as we know, you're either growing or you're dying. And so if I look at a neighborhood that's got a vacant lot while we have a shortage, is it my responsibility to help think of solutions that will help my neighbors? 
And we, we have to get back to that mindset of don't do it the way it's always been done just because we always did it that way. That's, uh, I love that. You know, I live in San Francisco. I've been to those community meetings in San Francisco and, oh man, they don't want to change anything. It's wild. But then they still get mad about the way things are, but don't change it. But we don't like it, but don't change it. You're like, come on, man, work with me here. But I do now have an, a title for the episode, and this is Lee Brown Loves California. Her props for California. Like, that's, <laughs> that's my title. I will be so done in any future political opportunities, Mike. You'll destroy me forever. But you know what? I'm probably going to have to start a third party to fix the world anyway. So I guess bring it. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's wrap up one last question. Um, and, and I like to get your take on the longer term future, second half of this decade. What's hap- What do you see in the market? Uh, what's happening in focus on Charlotte, if you like, or national uh, Charlotte common North Carolina. Uh, for those who need specifics. So funny, man. Go look at the top 20 list. You're going to crack up. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and what do you see in the long-term future? And then we'll wrap it up. Well, in the long-term future, there will still be real estate professionals helping people buy and sell houses. Now, there might not be one and a half million of them. We may see some shrinkage because of changing economic climate. I do think we're going to see a, a major economic hiccup going into 2025. And if you want to know why, it's because a lot of the COVID spending will sunset at that point. And we know that our officials on the local and state level get a little drunk on spending. And none of them, you can't show me, but maybe one around the country that's good at cutting spending. They're mostly very good at spending and at adding to it. They don't like to make cuts. And I do think we're going to have to see some cuts happen. I just don't know where they're going to be. My hope is that they don't cut down payment assistance and they don't cut the things that we're doing to help introduce more opportunities into the market. But that's going to depend on who shows up at local meetings for city and county and town officials and who's willing to go to the microphone. And if you're the one who's not willing to, then make a friend who is. Get them educated by your local realtor professionals. The government affairs directors are a wonderful resource. Help them They'll help you with talking points. They'll help you get ready to speak to it because we're going to have to get creative about the housing shortage. We're going to have to get creative about getting people onto the first rung of homeownership. And we're going to have to be prepared for spending cuts because what's going to happen is the first place elected officials like to go is property taxes. And we all know that increases in property taxes are going to hit senior citizens first because they're on fixed income. They're going to hit low-income houses first because they are stretched as it is. They're not necessarily going to hit the ones making the decisions. And so somebody's got to be in the room to speak on behalf of those that don't think they have a voice, even though they really do. So what we're going to see in the next 24 months, I think, is going to drive the next five years after that. But when you look at all of that, in North Carolina, and specifically in the greater Charlotte area, we're 10 years behind on building. So even if the sunsetting of the COVID spending causes an economic hiccup. Even if we see some job loss, we're so far behind the eight ball. I think that we're probably going to go flat. Maybe we'll tail off a little bit like an army crawl. I don't see anything happening that would drive us over a cliff, but I could be wrong. And I look at those things as positives for the market. And I even tell people that I'm like, if you stay put, most people right now are average a little over seven and a half years in a house because people are staying longer with the cost of money and the lack of inventory. 
So look over the seven-year window. That house you bought, price might go up, might go down, might go sideways. But we're not going to worry about it because what we're worried about is your payment. And that's why I'll have a job no matter what happens. The people who are at risk are the ones who don't take this job seriously. They're not willing to do the research and do the homework and have policy conversations because I do think a serious real estate professional is willing to have policy conversations, particularly with the other side of the aisle where the ideas may be wildly different, but perhaps, just perhaps, the other side has something that when added to yours is the solution we're looking for. Those are serious professionals that are willing to look at all pictures. They're willing to be visible in the community so that somebody's available to ask you. You're there to answer for them. You're a neighbor first and a real estate professional second. That's going to determine who survives over the long haul. And frankly, I look at the technology and the AI and all that stuff, and I think all of that is definitely just a something else people are going to chase. It's going to be the new shiny object. Sure, you want to look at it as a tool, but if you're not focused on policy and you're not focused on data, that AI is not going to do anything to help you serve your neighbors as they figure out what real estate means in their lives. Lee, that's a tremendous conversation. I appreciate you very much. Thank you for, for coming on. Uh, where should our folks follow you? You are active on social. You do a lot of, a lot of Instagram. Where, where are they following you? I mean, you follow me wherever you like, right? So if you're a Facebook person, follow me on Facebook. And of course, I'm Lee Brown or Lee Thomas Brown. However you look for me, the headshot matches me. I know that's wild and crazy in realtor world. On Twitter, I'm Lee Thomas Brown. And on Instagram, I'm Lee Thomas Brown and Pinterest. And there's a TikTok account that my staff runs because they're younger and I don't understand TikTok and I don't have the bandwidth to learn it, but I'm over there too. But if you message me on TikTok, I'm not going to see it because that's my people running that account. So full disclosure but you can always go to LeeBrown.com, and that's where all my social handles live, all my resources for real estate professionals, lots of free stuff on there. Go check it out. And at some point, if you're in real estate, you're going to have to decide if you are standing at the edge of real estate or if you're all in. So if you're all in, then you're probably my people. So go drink up some of the videos. Let me know if there's questions I can answer for you. But most importantly, figure out, who in your zip code needs to know you exist and then figure out what they need you to bring to them and go deliver. Lee, thank you so much. Really terrific. All right, everybody. Yay. This is the top of mind podcast. We'll be back in a week or two uh, with the next one. may have just gotten back from Gathering of Eagles, but we're not done with events for 2023 yet. This October, we're headed right back to Austin, Texas for Housing Wire Annual, and we want to see you there. We've got a power-packed agenda with content such as our Women of Influence speakers, peak performer playbooks, CEO playbooks, and more to propel your company forward, as well as a bunch of networking events. Because this event is open to real estate executives, mortgage title, and everyone in between, you really have the opportunity to network with people from all across the housing ecosystem. If you want to learn more about the event, or if you're already ready to get registered, head over to housingwire.com on the events tab and you can learn all about it. Not to mention, if you're an HW Plus member, you're going to get 50% off your ticket. So get registered for HW Plus and get registered for the event so we can see you out in Austin.
Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate leaving a nice review on your favorite podcast app. That helps other people find us as well. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes.